Tonight, growing concern for a killer on the run. The safety of the general public, especially girls, women. How did a convicted rapist and murderer escape from a mission prison and where he might be now? Plus, Cleveland Dam catastrophe. Now, fallout from the mistake that cost a father and son their lives. And... Olympic memories. It is really hard to not wake up and not have a flashback. And where some of them live on today. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. Chris and Sophie are off tonight. There are serious questions about the Canadian correction system after a man serving a life sentence for first degree murder walked away from a minimum security prison in Mission. As Nadia Stewart reports, the family of the young mother of three he sexually assaulted and killed is furious and concerned. Broderick Muchkikawanup was last seen at the Mission Institution at around 7.30 Thursday evening, reported missing following a routine inmate headcount at around 10 o'clock that night. RCMP were notified immediately. They were on site immediately as well. The search to find him soon spread well beyond Mission's borders. A tweet from police in Bellingham Friday afternoon points to a possible sighting in the Washington state border town. Mission RCMP say Muchkikawanup should not be approached if he's spotted, though they say he is not deemed a threat to the public. Part of our initial investigation is to conduct a risk, risk assessment to the public. Um, we are aware of this history, um, but at this point, in speaking with uh, Corrections Canada and our preliminary information, uh, we don't have anything to suggest that he's a threat to the general public. Oh, definitely. I think he's still a threat. Jade Frost is the niece of Kimberly Clark. Muchkikawanup was convicted of sexually assaulting and killing the 36-year-old mother of three in Winnipeg in 1998. Clark was walking home from a party when she was attacked and killed by Muchkikawanup under Winnipeg's Redwood Bridge. He's been in custody for her murder since 2000. Frost is upset he somehow managed to escape. When we went to court, we learned that he had previous charges that were dropped and he left another woman for dead in B.C., and then with the circumstances of my Auntie Kim's case, it was just very disturbing. He was eligible for day parole in August and full parole in August 2023. There are still mounting questions around how he got out. Mission Institution says there will be a full investigation. Nadia Stork, Global News. Breaking news in the Cleveland Dam tragedy. Three employees with Metro Vancouver have now been fired. Aaron MacArthur joins us live with more on this. Aaron, this was that sudden surge of water at the beginning of the month that killed two people. Yeah, that's right, Colleen. It was October 1st, middle of the afternoon, when the spillway gate at the top of the dam was suddenly open during routine maintenance. The water level of the Capilano River rose really quickly, three meters or so in just a few minutes. Six people were trapped in the canyon. As you said, two died. Metro Vancouver admitted a week later that it was responsible. There was human error involved programming the control system of the spillway gate. And now a month later, three people have been fired for their role in the incident, although Metro Vancouver will not say what their roles were. 
It raises questions about responsibility for the two people's deaths and civil liability questions. Although the RCMP says at this point it does not change the investigation and there are no criminal charges pending. Metro Vancouver has promised a full, transparent investigation into the incident. We expect more information to be released when it becomes available. Colleen? All right, Aaron, thank you. Some breaking news on a labour dispute involving janitorial workers, a dispute that could disrupt some BC ferry services next week. Employees of B-Clean, who work at the market at the Tawasson Ferry Terminal, have issued strike notice and could set up picket lines on Monday. If that happens, the Ferry Workers Union says its workers would honour the picket lines. The janitorial workers uh, have overwhelmingly voted after over a year of... Uh, negotiations and attempting to negotiate a fair contract uh, that would include fair wages, adequate sick days and health benefits for all workers. And the current deal on the table is not sufficient enough for the workers. If they pick at Tawasson Terminal, our members won't cross and, and that could lead to the shutdown of Tawasson Terminal. Late this afternoon, BC Ferries issued a statement saying any pickets will be confined to a specific area and that it anticipates to be in full operation on Monday. Two men have been arrested and charged in relation to a gangland-style murder at a busy Surrey gas station last year. At about 6 o'clock, the evening of September 29, 2019, 29-year-old Christian Corrick was gunned down while sitting in the driver's seat of a Mercedes SUV at the Cloverdale gas station. Days later, investigators released surveillance video showing the suspect crossing a nearby road and fleeing the scene. Today, 25-year-old Carlos Monteith was charged with first-degree murder, and 32-year-old Tryon Costello was charged with accessory after the fact. I think that many residents in Surrey are going to remember this incident uh, that we're speaking about today because it happened um, at 6 o'clock in the evening in a busy commercial area at a time when a lot of people were in the area just going about their daily business. Um, This incident certainly uh, impacted people's feelings of safety, particularly in Cloverdale. Um, You know, we want to thank the community, especially knowing that members of the community did assist with this investigation. Trying to crack down on money laundering in B.C. casinos was a delicate dance between enforcing the rules and keeping the high rollers happy. And that was the testimony today at the Cullen Commission. As John Waugh reports, casino staff say they had to watch out for money laundering and for the casino's bottom line. It was their job to investigate VIPs carrying in large quantities of suspicious cash into B.C. casinos. The BC Lottery Corporation's anti-money laundering team was also concerned about how that interaction could impact revenue. The service providers have a business to run. We certainly don't want to be the cause of uh, one of their valued customers uh, going to the competition. John Karlovic, BCLC's former anti-money laundering and investigations director, told the Cullen Commission it wasn't just casinos that had that concern. You understood that BCLC had an interest in the revenue as well, correct? Yes. I mean, BCLC is here to raise uh, revenue for the uh, public. In October 2014, BCLC witnessed a patron enter the River Rock with nearly $470,000 in 20s. The VIP played one hand and tried to cash out. When casino staff said he'd get $20 bills back, the patron instead took the chips to a hotel room. When BCLC interviewed the patron, a great Canadian executive said the approach could have been more polished. If you have a uh, 
a high limit, well-known client within your facility, uh, they want to make sure that those clients aren't offended. In December of that year, another patron made $1.8 million in cash transactions over seven days, despite having a patron gaming fund. This time, BCLC suggested casino management talk to the client first. And then you say, I recognize that we do not want to jeopardize revenue. However, if the dialogue does not garner the intended results, we may need to have our investigators have a chat with him. Karlovic would later suggest Great Canadian advise the player to stop using cash facilitators or loan sharks for his own safety. And were you also concerned that the cash from the cash facilitator might be proceeds of crime? It may well have been. Karlovic didn't order the casino to immediately stop taking the patron's money instead asked for his feedback on how customer service could be improved relating to his gaming needs. BCLC has stated its mandate to generate gaming revenue must always be balanced with compliance. The ability to do both would later be questioned in a provincial review of how casinos became a laundromat for criminal cash. John Hua, Global News. The extradition hearing for Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou today heard a Canada Border Services officer say he made a heart-wrenching mistake. Meng's lawyers are arguing her rights were violated when she was arrested at Vancouver International Airport. Romina Dea has the details. His face red on the stand. CBSA officer Scott Kirkland testified he was embarrassed when he found out he made an error when he provided the RCMP with Meng Wanzhou's phone passcode, which was written on a piece of paper. It was heart-wrenching to realize I made that mistake, said Kirkland, a border officer with 12 years experience. That passcode paper was intentionally created and intentionally given to the RCMP, said defense. No, it was not, replied Kirkland. Kirkland is one of several officers being sued in a civil suit, alleging Meng's charter rights were breached. The CBSA maintains Meng's almost three-hour examination without a lawyer was routine under the Immigration Act. Defense says the CBSA and RCMP essentially concocted a plot to gather intel for the FBI and U.S. authorities, allegations the witnesses deny. The newest witness, CBSA Superintendent Bryce McRae, is the second border officer to testify he also had national security concerns about Hmong. McRae told the court the FBI did not share information with him about the Huawei CFO. Where's the damage? So that evidence has not surfaced, but defense will be allowed to probe now for um, American motives, foreign interference uh, from the president's office in Washington, down to trade negotiations with China, even a policy of being anti-Huawei for American competitive interests. Immigration experts say this is just the beginning. The extradition matter could take years. The case is back in B.C. Supreme Court, November 16th. Romina Dea, Global News. To the latest COVID-19 numbers in our province, there are 272 new cases, bringing B.C.'s total to 14,381 since testing began. Sadly, one more person has died. That means we have now lost 264 people to COVID. 78 people are in hospital, 25 of them in the ICU. 11,670 people are considered recovered, leaving us with 2,390 active cases and just over 6,000 people in isolation. 
Let's bring in Keith Baldry for more on the numbers and particularly those in isolation now exceeding 6,000 people. Keith, how does that break down geographically? Yeah, you know, that's a new threshold. I don't think anybody saw it coming just months ago. And that number is going to continue to go up. We could be hitting 10,000 as we continue to post more than 200 cases a day. Not surprisingly, where these people live sort of match where we're seeing COVID the most. Take a look at the, these numbers. Two-thirds of the number uh, basically live in the Fraser Health Authority region. Most of those people uh, probably in Surrey, Langley, and Delta. Uh, Vancouver Coastal, not surprised, has the second most people currently under 14-day quarantine. 550 in the interior, 125 in Northern Health, and just 56 people here on Vancouver Island. Vancouver Island continues to remain almost a COVID-free zone. Now, a couple of other things to point out. Dr. Henry posted her order today uh, limiting you to six guests in your house and no parties and such, and she defines private residence as both indoors and outdoors. A number of people have been asking, what about our backyards? The order applies to your backyard as well. You can't have more than six people on top of the members of your household there. She also has given the authority to a regional medical health officer to expand the restrictions at their own uh, request. Uh, they don't need permission from Dr. Bonnie Henry. If a medical health officer in Fraser, for example, doesn't like what they're seeing, they can further restrict the number of people who are private residents or even restrict or shut down uh, private businesses. So this is an escalation of public health orders uh, in the weeks ahead. Interesting development. Keith, thank you. A BC company says it has come up with a way to ease one of the biggest heartbreaks for many families during the pandemic, not being able to visit loved ones in long-term care. Adam Integrated Industries in Salmon Arm has built what it calls Sentinel Cottage, a portable building that allows families to stay within their bubble in one room and safely visit their loved one in an adjoining room. The environmentally controlled rooms have separate entrances and are easily sanitized and they have microphones and built-in sleeves for actual contact. Cats are resourceful and it's not unusual for them to wander from home, even go missing for a time. But when one pet owner posted a lost cat sign in his neighborhood, things got scary. The notice that has owners of other missing cats in North Saanich fearing for the safety of their pets in just over a minute. As Global BC celebrates 60 years, we look back at the 2010 Olympic Games, the golden moments and where some memorabilia is being stored. And left for dead, what a homeless stabbing victim now says about the people of Vancouver. We'll have those stories coming up later on the news hour. A disturbing warning has pet owners in one North Saanich neighborhood on edge tonight. A notice has been posted complaining about wandering cats and threatening they'll be trapped and not returned if they're spotted again. Kylie Stanton has more. All right, the post was placed right here and it was a laminated piece just like this one. It's being called disturbing, even threatening, and was meant to send a message. I was really shocked. It felt wrong. Leslie Steves, with reuniting owners with animals missing or roam, was notified of the note posted at these mailboxes along Ardmore Road Wednesday evening. In it, the person identifies three cats they've noticed roaming their property, warning they don't want them using their yard as a bathroom or stalking birds. It goes on to say they've set out humane traps, but will not be taking the cats to the SPCA to be returned. Well, it's quite disturbing. Um, actually, I didn't see the note myself, but uh, it seems a little aggressive. Neighbours aren't hiding their feelings about the anonymous note. I'm not quite sure why somebody would do that. One even wrote a response, saying maybe you should just move away. There is something wrong with you. 
North Saanich has a bylaw preventing pets from roaming, but Animal Control says there are better ways to go about addressing the situation. First and foremost, well, do you know where the cat comes from? And if you do, you know, talk to your neighbours. Most people are reasonable. They may not even realize the cat's causing an issue. Brown warns against taking vigilante action. Trapping cats could result in criminal charges for theft or animal cruelty. At the same time, the owners could face fines of $100 for their roaming pets, although it's quite rare. I'm really happy to see that it's gone. The note has since been removed. Steve's is hopeful the poster has had a change of heart. That There's been uh, some room for thought and that they have a better understanding because of all the media attention, because of all the social media attention, that there is another way. Kylie Stanton, Global News, North Saanich. We're learning more about a man known locally as Jesse James, who was found shot to death in Squamish back in 2017. On Thursday, homicide investigators revealed his real name was Davis Wolfgang Hawk. And as Catherine Urquhart reports, the more we learn about his life, the more mysterious his death becomes. Davis Wolfgang Hawk began life with another name, Andrew Greenbaum. But after growing up in a Jewish home in a Boston suburb, he adopted the Hawk surname, moving toward extremism and becoming an American neo-Nazi. He was also a prolific online con man. In 2005, his spam emails resulted in a U.S. court ordering him to pay $12.8 million to America Online, whose customers he had bilked out of millions. But Hawk disappeared, eventually fleeing to Canada. More than a decade ago, he settled in Squamish, using the alias Jesse James, perhaps a clue to his fugitive status. The avid climber was known to avoid having his face photographed. In 2017, he disappeared again, and it would take more than three years to identify his body, which was found in a burned-out SUV on a forest road near Squamish. His true identity only recently confirmed through DNA testing. He had a lot of possibilities in front of him and just something went wrong. McWilliams studied and wrote about Hawk in his book Spam Kings. He believes Hawk made millions off his scams and possibly buried much of it. AOL won a court order to dig up two properties, but never actually followed through. When I talked to him, he was always sort of slightly paranoid about um he would say things like, you know, I think the CIA is listening into our phone call. Hawk was considered highly intelligent, and U.S. authorities pursued him for years. Now, investigators on both sides of the border are trying to piece together who killed the fugitive, whose past just may have finally caught up to him. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. When we come back, the year the Olympics came to town. The golden memories and where some forgotten legacies are being stored. And how the Liberal Party may have to reinvent itself to survive as the news hour continues. Traffic is steady eastbound here on Highway 1 through Coquitlam on the approach to the Portman Bridge, still dealing with a pothole on Highway 17 underneath the Portman Bridge. Sussex Insurance has auto plan offices inside Walmarts and the Real Canadian Superstores throughout BC. For hours and locations, visit sussexinsurance.com, open every day. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above Highway 1 in Coquitlam. Global BC 60th anniversary in partnership with Connect Hearing, the number one physician referred hearing provider. 
If you were lucky enough to be here, you'll likely agree few events in Vancouver can compare to the 2010 Winter Olympic Games. For two weeks, we hosted the world, and it was a golden success. The legacies include the Canada Line, Richmond Oval, and the Olympic Cauldron at Jackpool Plaza. Now, Jordan Armstrong takes us to the Vancouver archives to discover some of the other saved treasures from the experience of a lifetime. In separate trunks deep in the bowels of the Museum of Vancouver, we find some old friends. Sumi, Miga, and Kwachi. The 2010 mascots, it turns out, have been self-isolating for years. So let's look back to a time when these characters were in the midst of crowds and the joyous Olympic and Paralympic atmosphere was on full display. I'm so proud to be Canadian, man. It's the best day in the history of Canadian sports. Who could forget Sidney Crosby's golden goal and the street celebrations that followed, for many, the highlight of the Games. It was just an incredible feeling to be in that arena and to experience that goal and to celebrate and then to hear the celebration spreading across the country. For Vancouver's Olympic Organizing Committee, the mild weather that February was both a curse and a blessing. The streets were packed every night. Even if you didn't have a ticket to an event, you could participate in the games. Several parks became massive outdoor viewing venues. A zip line and nightly fireworks show took over Robson Square. A record 14 Canadian gold medals. There was a lot to cheer about. Every day in Vancouver, it is really hard to not wake up and not have a flashback. It was so big and so overwhelming, and it physically altered the state of the city and the way we all behave. But the balmy weather that brought out crowds brought an Olympic-sized headache for organizers. The snowboard venue at Cyprus needed snow, a lot of snow, and it had to be trucked and choppered in at great expense. And I said, I don't care how much it costs. And it was the only time I said this in my six years at Van Ock to anybody. You need to spend whatever it takes to get the snow in. It's the big risk to the games. There was also tragedy. Just hours before the opening ceremony, a Georgian loser died on a training run at Whistler. But the games went on and a decade later are widely viewed as a huge success. When we needed help from, from people, from volunteers, from companies in the city on short notice, everybody stepped up. And so this wasn't just our organizing committee and the volunteers, it really the city came together. The memories and about 3,000 artifacts like Wayne Gretzky's torch live on at the Museum of Vancouver. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. When we come back, why there could be big changes coming to the B.C. Liberal Party. Plus, we have a lot of great crowds. There's something happening. You're going to see that. The Midwest becomes the battleground in the final fight for votes in America. And no sugarcoating it, UBCM experts weigh in on the effects of candy on kids. Traffic is steady in both directions tonight at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Keep in mind, though, overnight maintenance causes lane closures both ways, 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. 
in celebration of Set for Life Scratch and Win's 20th anniversary, every ticket is getting a second chance to win. Visit setforlife.ca for details, 19 plus to play. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Rescue crews scramble in Turkey to dig a survivor from the rubble in the city of Izmir after a magnitude 7 earthquake struck in the Aegean Sea. Buildings collapsed and tidal waves slammed into the coastal areas, killing at least 19 people in Turkey and Greece. More than 700 are injured and the damage is widespread. Turkey is among the most earthquake-prone countries in the world. It's going to be about two weeks before we know the final results of the provincial election, but already B.C. Liberal MLAs and party supporters are throwing out ideas on how to rebuild or even rebrand after Saturday night's big defeat. Richard Sussman has more. So today we begin the challenging and exciting process of rebuilding the party. It's the first step in a makeover. On Saturday, the executive of the B.C. Liberal Party will gather just a week after suffering the party's worst election defeat since 1991. I think the first thing that they're going to need to do is, is give themselves a good, long, hard look uh, inward and, and see what they need to do differently. Uh, in 2017, I don't think they had quite the impetus for change. On election night, the NDP won or were leading in 55 ridings. The Liberals, 29. The Greens, 3. Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson is stepping down as leader. And many party supporters believe he should make way soon for an interim leader. I would like to see an interim leader um, that has no interest in ultimately becoming the party leader. Wilkinson originally suggesting he would stay on until a new leader's chosen. But over the last week, many supporters have told him that's a bad idea. It would also give the party more time to focus on what went wrong and recruit possible candidates for a leadership race. I don't think that there is an easy answer, nor should there be, nor should we jump to an easy answer. Because part of our ultimate success, I think, is going to be the long grind of actually going out there and really talking to uh, to BC Liberal members. Then there's the discussion about the name. Is now the time for the BC Liberals to rebrand? And if they do so, would they have a better chance of sending people here to the legislature? Changing the name is not enough, um, but changing the name, I think, is absolutely essential. It's not as simple as you might think. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the obvious choices that uh, first might come to mind are probably not available. But no matter the name, one thing's clear. This weekend is just the start and a road back to provincial relevancy. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. As the final weekend before Tuesday's U.S. election approaches, the candidates are looking to shore up support in a series of make-or-break Midwestern swing states. Global's Reggie Giacchini joins us live from Washington, D.C. Reggie, Democrats will also step into Republican territory to try to capitalize on some recent gains. Yeah, good evening, Colleen. Roughly 5% of the American population still considers themselves to be undecided. And with time very quickly running out for the candidates, they are barnstorming the states that they think they have the best chances in to win a victory. Racing to the end, Donald Trump returned to states that tipped towards him in 2016. This is a great crowd. We have a lot of great crowds. There's something happening. You're going to see that. Trump's win was narrow in Michigan. Four years later, the support is no longer there, partly driven by frustration over his COVID-19 response. Our closing message is, we're going to defeat the virus, we're going to rebuild the economy. The pandemic is running wild through the Midwest, like in Wisconsin, where a field hospital is active. I don't see a light at the end of the tunnel right now, 
there is no rounding the corner in Wisconsin today. The state that Trump took four years ago now swinging back towards Democrats in a sign of persistent struggles the incumbent is facing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Meanwhile, after learning a lesson in 2016, to not become complacent. I don't take anything for granted. We're going to work for every single vote up to the last minute. Democrats mobilized in the Midwest, shoring up support while gazing outwards. Gains in Republican territory have put some states in play and the Biden team on offense. The last-minute race around the country is all about math. Polls show that Joe Biden currently has enough support to put him over the threshold of 270 electoral votes. Key swing states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Pennsylvania, all lead Democratic. Donald Trump is looking to lock in the toss-up states, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, Iowa, Texas, Ohio, and Arizona. But that doesn't get him to 270 meaning Trump would need to flip the swing states and either take Pennsylvania or two of the three Midwestern states. The sense of urgency is real. The president is set to hold 17 rallies between Friday and Monday, leaving him on defense with time running out. Reggie, the underdog, that being Donald Trump, has a very busy weekend ahead of him. Yeah, Colleen, those 17 rallies that the president is going to take part in between Friday and Monday really are part of those key states that he won back in 2016 but is now losing support in. But he's really heading to states that he won handily back in 2016 that are now competitive or leaning Democratic. Places like Georgia and Florida and Iowa and Ohio. These are all states that really have been reliably Republican for decades now. And the president is starting to dwindle in his support as they go towards Joe Biden, either because of a Democrat demographic shift or because Joe Biden appeals more to the blue collar workers in some of these states. That's why we're seeing the Biden campaign start to pick up and put down in in territories that have been reliably Republican, really making it unclear what's going to happen on Tuesday night. There's a projection of confidence coming from the Trump campaign. There's a projection of cautious optimism coming from the Biden uh, from the Trump camp. Continues to be interesting. Thanks so much, Reggie. In Health Matters tonight, scientists at UBC Okanagan have some expert advice for parents worried about their children's sugar intake over Halloween. They're recommending giving kids a one-time hall pass for all candy on Halloween night. After that, ration out the treats. They're also reminding us that ingredients dextrose, fructose, glucose, and maltose are all just different kinds of sugar. And as for alternate sweeteners, they say products like aspartame and stevia also increase the risk of heart disease and stroke. Still to come, an attitude of gratitude from a man who has very little. There has been an an incredible pouring uh, of of concern and and caring. How How complete strangers are lending a hand to a man who has was stabbed and left for dead. And later, this week's edition of Satellite Debris as the news hour continues. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. A homeless man who was stabbed and beaten at the Strathcona Park Tent City says he's been overwhelmed by offers of help. On Wednesday, Global News brought you Adam Blackburn's story. Despite being in a wheelchair, recovering from numerous stab wounds and the resulting surgeries, Blackburn still didn't have guaranteed access to a safe place to stay. Jordan Armstrong has this NewsHour follow-up. I feel loved by people that I don't even know. In the wake of a vicious attack are offers of help, enough to make the victim 
cry. I was moved to tears last night, like I absolutely honored and humbled by people that I don't even know, I've never met. We first met Adam Blackburn Wednesday when the 46-year-old shared his story about being stabbed and brutalized while asleep earlier this month at Strathcona Park, Tent City. For eight hours, he writhed in pain until a good Samaritan called for help. I'm trying to think of how to track down that lady who made the call that assisted me because, you know, without her, you know, I'd probably not be sitting here sharing a story at all. His story is one of rapid downfall. This could really happen to just about anybody, you know, it could catch you... Uh, not prepared, and boom, down you go. A year ago, he was a marathoner and construction safety manager. Then the pandemic hit. Then a domestic assault charge for which he maintains his innocence. It's, it's not at all what it seems like. All it takes is an accusation, and you got to go through the steps and processes to clear it up. Blackburn will spend another night in emergency shelter, but hopes to have hotel or other temporary accommodation soon. For him, a hot shower is akin to luxury. You know, I've just been kind of bird bathing for the most part, and to try to find a place where I could do that at is, you know, difficult and embarrassing. But above all, gratitude to the strangers who've offered a hand up and money. Thousands has been raised on a GoFundMe page. You know, I'm not perfect in, in, in any stretch. I've, I'll probably make a few more mistakes in my life, but I just want to thank everybody for uh, reaching out to me and, and thinking of me in this time. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. And we wish him nothing but the best. Okay, Flash Gordon is here with the forecast. <laughs> I don't know what I'm supposed to do to this sound, Mark. <laughs> Thanks, Mark, for the uh, little audio there. Uh, yeah, Flash Gordon, I can't believe I've never dressed up as this before, but there you go. I'm giving you a Halloween forecast, and it's not that spooky, everyone. Here's a quick look at it. So tomorrow we are expecting dry conditions. We may see some cloud cover in the morning. Sunset just seven minutes before 6 o'clock, so at 5 p.m. the sun will still be up, 10 degrees. But as soon as the sun sets, it'll drop off quite quickly. So if you're still out at 9 p.m., it'll likely be about 6 degrees. So you may want to give the kids a little extra layer underneath, but nothing like what they'll see in the interior regions and I'll show you that. First though, the one area I want to note uh, is that the north and central coast will see periods of rain, likely flurries for these inland regions. We may see some cloud cover in the morning, but generally we're expecting mainly sunny skies across southern BC. But these are the areas where you need to make sure that the kids have something to keep them dry and certainly in these interior regions, you may need to give them something to keep them warm because these are the Halloween feels like temperatures for you at around 7 o'clock near or below freezing in terms of the feels like in these areas and very close to freezing in through the eastern sections as well. So much milder along the coast. We're pretty lucky. At least it's mostly dry across southern BC. I just want to point out this. Off in the long range, it looks pretty consistent that we could have a massive dip in temperature. So this is next weekend, everyone. A heads up for potentially winter-like conditions. All right. So there's your weekend, your Saturday, your Halloween Saturday, wet along the north and central coast. Most other regions, though, dry conditions and and we will see near seasonal values across coastal regions, but around trick-or-treating, about 7 or 8 degrees. And uh, don't forget, we change our clocks Sunday morning, so we fall back an hour, and that means we get an hour's extra sleep. And I'll just leave you with your central window's weather window, which is a really cool shot. Tracy Walt sending us that from Victoria. Brilliant idea. Love it. Mm-hmm. Love it. All right, Squire joins us dressed as one of our favorite sportscasters this Halloween. <laughs> I was going to say. I recognize I'm, you. I'm Commissioner Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> there you you go. know, that would be a cool sweater for anybody who works at BC Hydro. 
Commissioner Gordon? No, no, that sweater you're wearing. What the oh, oh. <laughs> right. All right. Point. Okay, Same yeah. There you go. Say that for no apparent reason. Uh, there is a strong chance that the Seahawks may have to play this Sunday. This is spooky and scary with their uh, fourth string running back. You can't be a rookie. Like, there's no time for you to be a rookie. Did you notice the Backstreet Boys reference there? Anyway, DJ Dallas is the only healthy back the Hawks have two days out from their game against San Francisco. And, of course, it's Friday, so Squire is also here with this week's edition of Satellite Debris. That's coming up. Stay with us. This is cleared. He's ready for sports. Squire. All right, here we go. Thank you very much. Okay, so now comes the part of the show where we do math. Well, actually, not you and I. We'll get Barry to do the math for us. The Whitecaps have two games left in the regular season. Sunday they're playing Portland, which were the, that's where the Caps are staying these days. So it's kind of like a home-away game or a way-home game. Take your pick. Whatever the case, this game against Portland and other games around this game will change the playoff math. It's around the corner on Veselinovic. It's a great touchback and it's 2-0. Despite an 8-13 record and all of the COVID challenges, the Whitecaps still have a shot at the playoffs with just over a week to go in the regular season. They do not, however, control their own destiny. Even if they beat both Portland and LA Galaxy, if the right teams ahead of them win, the Whitecaps will be out. The mentality of the guys, it's still one of belief. Uh, it's still one of... Uh, at the end of the day, the teams that have games still have to win their games and we have to, to try to push and try to be in. We want to come out of this on top and we want to say that, you know, with all the adversity and all the obstacles we face, we, we still achieve um, the goal of making the playoffs. Basically, the Whitecaps have to pass either San Jose or Colorado to get in. Winning their last two games would give them a great shot to make the top eight. But if they lose to Portland or even draw with the Timbers Sunday, there is a chance Vancouver could be mathematically eliminated that night. But not necessarily. If San Jose and Colorado also lose, the Caps would still be alive. If we don't make it in the last state, at least we're going to be standing as a team that fought all the way uh, despite everything. And that's what we want to do. So... We want to go about what we can control, and what we can control, it's the next two games. There are more casualties in the Seattle Seahawks' backfield than there are in an episode of Game of Thrones. Chris Carson, Carlos Hyde, and Travis Homer are all suffering from various injuries. Nobody knows yet, not even head coach Pete Carroll, how many, if any, of those three can actually play against the 49ers this Sunday. Yeah, we're going all the way to game time. On, these, on all three guys and uh, to see what happens then. Um, we did not practice them this week and that was just to give them every single day to get, have a chance to get back. So uh, we'll see them on the field on, Saturday, on Sunday. So basically, Chris Carson, Carlos Hyde, and Travis Homer are all game time decisions, which means the only healthy running back in Seattle right now is rookie DJ Dallas. He's a really good football player. Uh, instinctive, one-cut, decisive runner, uh, really good feet, really good change of direction. Um, and, uh, again, he's a, he's a guy that we uh, know can play well and uh, play to winning level for us. Being a rookie, mind you, DJ is happy just to be on the field, either as a running back or even on special teams. I just kind of take my reps where I can get them, you know, kind of like a, a hyena in the wild. <laughs> you, you find some, you, you go get it. So I, I try to 
I try to take my reps where I can. When you think about it, though, with all those veteran running backs hurt, Russell Wilson could very well be the de facto number one running back for Seattle, even though he's the quarterback. After all, he led the Seahawks in rushing last week against Arizona. All right, how about some golf from Bermuda? Uh, Merritt's Roger Sloan. Short on this tee shot, but uh, he is actually tied for six through two rounds at minus five. Just three back of the leaders, Ryan Armour and uh, Wyndham Clark. But the story of the day was 64-year-old Fred Funk, who was playing with his son. That's the only reason he's in this tournament. And he makes the cut right there. The son almost kills him in the celebration. But Fred Funk is just the fourth player in PGA history to make the cut at the age of 64 or more. Tom Watson, Jack Nicklaus, and Sam Snead did it. There you go. I love his name. Fred, Fred Funk. Funk. Bring great. on the noise. Bring on the funk. Yes. No kidding. Okay, it's not Friday unless there's satellite debris. Squire has that next. Stay with us. Okay. Uh, the gang's all here. Time for satellite debris, Squire. Yes. I think, the, uh, I think these first two commercials are from Norway. They're not from here. Okay. They're, uh, that's what I do know for sure. Uh, and they're for a supermarket. Here we go. <laughs> Okay, this is so 2019 because this is Halloween without the pandemic. But first, a very odd commercial from, I think it's Fruit Gushers. Here we go. When a squid is agitated, it'll sometimes release a sort of... Ew! That doesn't taste like a gusher! Just because it goos doesn't mean it's gush. Gush. Treat the treat! Uh, treat? Okay. More! More, please, mister! Okay, that, that's it, okay. Cheers, mate. Come on then, Babs, let's get out of here. We've got the other house to get to. Come on. Tell Tracy I'll see her on Tuesday. Okay, Jane, yeah. Come on, love. Wait, wait. What? You've got more than me. No, I am. Love the gusher. <laughs> All right. Um, Marvin and Tammy, way back in the day, sang a beautiful song together, and now a cat and bird will do the same tune. Here we go. 
morning dew I took one look at you And it was plain to see You were my destiny It's even better when it's free. 95% of the nation's top TV. No monthly cost. Freeview. How good is that? Who doesn't love anamorphic animals? I thought we were going to end up with the bird in the mouth. No. At the end there. It is Halloween. (laughs) Yeah. I thought he would be like, oops. Sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> no, not quite. <laughs> um, well, and speaking of Halloween, uh, one last look at our Halloween forecast. Sure. So uh, clear skies both tonight and Saturday night. So the temperatures will drop down about four degrees, but great trick-or-treating weather with dry conditions across all of southern B.C., except for the north and central coast rain for you. And don't forget, we change our clocks early Sunday morning, but it does mean we get an hour of sleep. But I always forget that. Change the clocks before you go to bed. We'll remind you tomorrow again. Thanks. can never be reminded too much. And be sure to join us right here tomorrow at (laughs) 6 as we celebrate the day 6. 60 years ago that Global BC signed on. And as we leave you tonight, a reminder to be kind, be calm, and be safe this Halloween. This amazing handiwork from Bruce Ng of South Surrey. Have a good night.